You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. The knowledge of basic plant biology is an incredibly useful tool in any horticulturist's belt that helps us understand why the rules we all know so well actually do apply. In this episode, we're lucky enough to have as a guest Professor Ros Gledo, who's a professor of plant science at the Monash University, she's the president of the Global Plant Council, and she's also on the board of Eucalypt Australia. Now, a podcast is an audio medium, so we're limited in this format, but there are some great diagrams that we'll link to in the show notes, which will help illustrate a lot of the concepts that we'll be talking about in this episode. Welcome to the show, Ros. Thanks, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no workers. So I guess that we can talk about four different types of plants, bryophytes, pteridophytes, gymnosperms, and angiosperms. Can you walk us through how these types are a little bit different? Yeah, these are the four major groups of plants. Uh, the bryophytes are most commonly known as the mosses and the liverworts. Then the pteridophytes, which is what I say, but it doesn't matter, there's a thousand ways to say all these words, are the, the ferns or the plants that don't make any seeds, seedless vascular plants sometimes are called. The gymnosperms are the conifers and the pines, and that now also includes cycads. They've been reclassified into that group. And then the angiosperms are the flowering plants. So they're the four main groups. Fantastic. And I guess how did these four groups sort of diverge from each other? Well, the bryophytes are the most simple and they are the closest related to the algal ancestors from which all land plants have come. So it turns out that photosynthesis, like we know it, and the green plants we know it, all have the same origin. They basically all do that whole conversion of energy through photosynthesis the same way, and they all have the same type of green product or chlorophyll in them. So we know that they're all related. And the bryophytes are the first land plants. So we could call them as being ancestral. They don't have uh, they don't have true roots, they don't have true leaves, and they don't have any kind of vascular system or water conducting system. Then you can move on to the tridophytes, which are more recent, but still, you know, I'll probably get this wrong, but about 400 million years ago, we started getting the tridophytes and they are the ferns and they have true leaves and they have true roots, roots and a vascular system. And then more recently than that, we evolved the gymnosperms, which are have cones and are sometimes the word itself means naked seed. So they have a kind of a different reproductive system. But the important thing is that they have uh, water conducting systems and uh, woody tissue. And the angiosperms, which are the ones that we're most familiar with, which have flowers and they have fruits. And the angiosperm word itself is really means enclosed seed. Mm. So the seeds are enclosed in a fruit and that's the defining feature of the angiosperms as well as the fact that they have flowers. Mm. Thank you. So I guess when we're talking about flowering plants, we're talking about, you know, grasses and eucalyptus trees are going to be more closely related than eucalyptus trees and a conifer, like a pine yeah. tree. Yeah, that's right. So they're all a all the flowering plants have a particular type of flower and though not everybody realizes it but the grasses have flowers and they have uh, they have fruits so fruit is the defining feature and whether that fruit's a dandelion seed or a eucalypt capsule or an apple they're all still a fruit and i guess can you tell us like when we're thinking about how plants have evolved we're looking at a sort of a tree where we've got you know mosses right down the bottom and then things are branching off as they go along yeah yeah, exactly. So I guess we can imagine this as some kind of, of tree where you have a, an ancestral form, which would be a green algae. And then you develop certain features which have enabled plants to colonize land, and that would be the bryophytes. So the bryophytes that we see today, not the same ones that we saw in the past, but they're the modern representatives. And they have certain features that enable them to live on land. And then the pteridophytes and the ferns have better features. They have certainly major improvements in the way the leaves and roots and water conducting systems work on. And so you have that classic kind of tree where you have what looks like a straight line from 
you know, all these different things through to today. But in fact, you have the ancestral forms and what we're looking at today in modern representatives of each of those ancestral forms. And I suppose we're going to touch on vascular systems soon. But I guess once we get into the angiosperms, we can split those up into monocots and dicots. Can you explain how those are different from each other? Yeah, this is a major split in the angiosperms and the monocots or the monocotyledons and the dicotyledons refer specifically to the number of those first seed leaves. So the number of leaves that emerge and that's what the mono and di refers to. So when you look at a grass germinating, you know, say you sow your lawn and you see the little green things coming up, you just see one little green thing from each seed. Whereas if you're growing your broad beans or eucalypts or whatever, you'll see two little seeds, seedling leaves come up. And so that's, that's the defining feature. But there are another, a number of other things that are characteristic of the monocots and dicots. For example, the monocots mostly have the flower parts in threes. So for example, you think of irises or lilies, they'll have three or six petals, sepals and so on. Whereas the dicots will have their different parts of the flower are in fours and fives. Hmm. So even if it doesn't look like fours or fives, it is if you actually actually look at how they may be fused together. So if you look at the top of a solanum flower, you can see it has five lobes. That's interesting. I didn't know because I thought that there were some that didn't quite conform, but you're saying that they do conform, it's just that they might be fused. Yeah, that's, it's pretty standard. I mean, there may be exceptions that I'm not aware of because I'm not like a full-on ordinary botanist. I work more on how plants function rather than how they look. But uh, that's my understanding is that that's, that's pretty certain. And if they don't look like that, say a pea flower looks pretty weird or a, a mint flower, but that's because the parts are fused. They're actually still in fives. Huh, there you go. So are there any other differences between the two? Yeah, another one that's important is that the monocots don't form normal what we call secondary growth. So they don't get fat. And I know people are about to just say, but I know fat, some fat monocots, but they don't have the typical secondary growth. So the dicots will always be things like your trees and uh, your woody plants um, and so on. They'll be your dicots that have that, that woody trunk that increases in diameter. And there's a few monocots that do it, but they do it a little bit of a different way and it's quite characteristic. So that, that's another major difference. And the just the arrangement of how their water and sugar conducting systems work in the plant is different and that's related to whether they can ultimately form these woody woody substances and get fat like a fat tree. Now, something I've always wondered, Roz, I've been sort of trying to find this answer and I wasn't able to find it on Google, surprise, but how does anomalous secondary growth in, in a monocot like a palm tree happen? Now, I think I know, but I haven't looked at it. You can even mm. leave this in the podcast if you like. I think I know, <laughs> but I, uh, it's just like a stirring a very, very deep memory from when I was a student. <sighs> so how do palms grow? I c- actually can't remember exactly all the details, and some botanists listening to this will know the answer to that question. But they don't form the normal rings of of the conducting tissue and the woody tissue in the same way. It's, uh, it's called, it's called a, so sometimes referred to as false secondary growth, but I can't remember the details. Okay, that's fine. Thank you. So can you describe in as much possible in an audio format, you know, knowing that we've got links in the show notes to some diagrams, how vascular systems work in plants, whether that's gymnosperms, ferns, or angios, including dicots and monocots? So there's two different types of conducting system in in plants. So we, our vascular system is is our ve- venous and aorta network. Okay, so we have these blood vessels that go around. But plants have a different type of system, and they have one that is responsible for conducting the water through the plant, and the other is conducts the sugars around the plant. Now the traditional view is the water goes from the roots up to the leaves and out and that the sugars go from the leaves down to the roots. But in fact, the transport within the sugar system can go in both directions, and but the water definitely goes in one direction. But in both cases, they go from an area of 
where there's lots of water to where there's not much water. And with the sugars, they go from where there's a lot of sugars to no sugars. Uh, the other thing that's really important in understanding is that the, uh, the water conducting system, or xylem as it's called, it's a great word with X, it's a great Scrabble word. <laughs> the, the xylem is actually dead when it conducts the water. So they're like wooden tubes. And inside the wooden tube, you've got the water as a continuous column. And that's because water molecules kind of hang together. So you know that if you fill a glass really, really full, you can actually see the water can actually go above the top of the glass. So it actually can actually form a little dome. So this is, this is from the cohesive nature of water molecules. So if you have a continuous column of water in, if you like, a wooden tube that goes from the root all the way up to the leaf, as the water evaporates off the leaf, because it's, the air is always going to be drier than the plant, right, because all life is essentially aquatic on the inside, so as water leaves the leaf and goes into the air, more water is drawn up the root. And this happens because it's a continuous stream. And this kind of makes sense in a practical point of view that if you break that and have what an embolism or an air bu bubble in it, then that particular column won't work anymore. And that's, that's the, really the rationale behind when you take a cutting or you cut flowers, you recut the stem underwater before you put it in the vase and that's so that that is, as it kind of sucks up that little bit of water when you cut it you actually want to fill that with water so that you have that continuous stream so that, that those xylem vessels will continue to work properly so that's a that's a, if you like a, a passive system i mean it just works on physical properties of water being cohesive from from the root right through up to the leaf the plants do have some sort of bit of sideways movement that can heal if you get near bubble but generally that's the that's the system the sugar system by by contrast is the phloem and that's another great word it's one of those last diphthong words i think in english p-h-l-o-e-m and i love that's a great scrabble word as well and the phloem is actually living so instead of the conducting systems being empty it's actually full of stuff like the normal cytoplasm that you have in cells. And the way that system works is that the sugars get transported in that system. Now, they have a number of different cells in the sieve tubes. Sorry, the sieve tubes are the conducting cells and then you have other cells associated with it, the companion cells, which are the ones that kind of drive the whole system and the sieve tubes are all connected to each other and they do actually have little walls between them, but there's lots and lots of little little holes in those walls and so that they so it can make a continuous stream. But this is this is living and it can go in both directions. So it goes from um, say if you've got a leaf that's doing lots and lots of photosynthesis, it's making lots of sugars, and that can either go down to the roots or it can also go up to a part of the plant that needs sugars, like say a part of the plant that's going to be flowering or the growing tips or anything like that. So the sugar will go to where it's most needed. And in fact, there's uh, the, the person that really came up with the first theory to describe this, it's obviously more mature than that now, is a guy called Martin Kenny. And he was actually the foundation professor of botany at Monash University. It's called the mass flow hypothesis. And, and while there's been developments on that, it's just, you know, great to see that we have this Australian connection with this fundamental mm. understanding of how sugars move around plants. Fantastic. So he's actually from Monash. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's actually recently passed away. He was the first, what they call a chair or the first professor of botany at, at Monash. And he was there for, I know, at least a decade and then moved to the ANU where he continued his research. But he was at Monash when he put forward these theories. Mm. So how do the vascular systems in dicots differ from monocots? So there's a number of differences between the, how the vascular systems in dicots and monocots work. The, the basic principle is exactly the same, but what is really the arrangement of the tissues is really different. So they all have, so the xylem has these, uh, these dead cells, which are just open tubes and the ends open, and the, they, all, they all have that. In the angiosperms, it's actually slightly different in the gymnosperms, and the way it's arranged is different. So 
So all plants have like three lots of cell types of cells, if you like, or four. You've got the outer layer. They have like an epidermis, which is kind of like the skin. That's what dermis means. Then you have what's called ground tissue, which is packing cells. Sometimes if people are familiar with the terms parenchyma or parenchyma, it gets called, which are the kind of be like the cortex or the pith. And then you have the vascular tissue, which is the phloem to the outside and then the xylem to the inside. Now, in dicots, these are arranged in young cells in little bundles. They're called vascular bundles. So you have these little ellipses of a little bit of phloem to the outside and a bit of xylem to the inside. And as the plant develops its secondary growth, they actually expand and coalesce and make a whole ring. Now, people would be familiar with those rings because when you cut a tree down, the tree rings are in fact those rows and rows of xylems as the plant grows grows bigger, but it's in rings. And the phloem is always to the outside. In monocots, the vascular bundles aren't in a ring and they, ne- they don't coalesce. They're just kind of scattered all over the place. So this is one reason why they're unable to form the normal secondary growth or uh, increase in diameter that we talked about earlier because those vascular bundles are scattered across the surface. Hmm. So as opposed to a dicot tree, which has tree rings, if you cut down, say, a large monocot like a palm tree, you're going to see a bunch of strawy type things. Yeah, I think that's it. I'm not that familiar with how palm palms look in cross-sections, but they're not going to have those really neat systems that you have in those. But certainly if you cut something down like, a, like say, a really big thick maize stem, you're going to see lots of dots in it rather than around a ring. Um, you can see these rings in um, the uh, circular arrangement, so the, the ring of vascular bundles quite clearly in something like celery. If you cut celery in half across the stem, you can see that's a flowering plant, you can see the little rings. One reason you can tell the difference between monocots and dicots, which I didn't mention earlier, so one reason you can tell the difference between monocots and dicots is that uh, monocots mostly have long strappy leaves with parallel veins, whereas the dicots have a more palmate, I was going to say more complex leaves with veins going in, in lots of different directions. That's, that's a characteristic feature of monocots and dicots. The term that I'd learnt for the leaf venation is reticulate, which is the same as like reticulation that we talk about when we're talking about um, irrigation. Yeah, I think reticulation would be good. So it goes, it branches in lots of different directions rather than being parallel. Mm. And this has implications for how they use water and, and, and so on as well. Mm. But it's, it's certainly characteristic between those two. Mm. But the, it's the, arra- the difference between the monocots and dicots with a vascular system is the arrangement of the bundles. The difference between flowering plants or angiosperms and gymnosperms is in the type of cells that go to make up the xylem. Right. So the type of cells that make up the xylem is actually different between the two. Yeah. So in gymnosperms, they have what we think are the ancestral forms of of xylem where they have these things called tracheids. And tracheids are like long tubes with sloping ends on them that all kind of slot together, one above the other and they have perforations between them, and they're quite narrow, and they're all very regular in shape. The dicots have, they do have tracheids, the dicotyledons, or the, um, not just dicotyledons, but the angiosperms, they do have tracheids, but they also have these things called vessels, which are much, much wider, you know, maybe even 10 times wider, more, and they completely lose the partition between cell to cell so that you end up with these hollow tubes. So they can actually conduct much larger volumes of water. And there is a consequence of this of the type of wood. So if you're making wood out of gymnosperms, like, say, pines, it'll be much more even because you've got these very even trachids that are much smaller and finer, and they're called the softwoods. And the ones that have the two different types, the trachids and the vessels, largely vessels but also trachids, mixed in with it as well as they both have fibres which are like woody structural parts in them as well. But if you have this mixture of of vessels, they're all different sizes and so it makes a much rougher type of wood or a less less smooth wood and they're called the hardwoods. 
So that's the sort of fundamental difference, in my understanding anyway. Some foresters probably rolling their eyes at this, but that's my understanding <laughs> of the main difference between softwoods and hardwoods. That's very interesting. That makes a lot of sense because I guess gymnosperms tend to be a bit straighter than angiosperms tend to be. Yeah, I'm not sure how it relates to how straight or not they are, but I do know how it relates to the quality of the wood because you can have gymnosperms that are quite branched, Mm. you know, like some of the um, white cedars and so on. Mm. Okay, that's very interesting. So, Ros, can you describe what meristematic tissue means? Meristematic tissue or meristems are where plants grow from. They're regions of growth within plants. This is fundamentally different from animals like us. We grow everywhere. If you look at a child that's growing, it's growing all over the place. That's fingers and toes and everything all at once. But plants grow from specific regions called meristems. And these are typically at the tips of the plant. So you have the apical meristems at the tips of the shoots and the roots. And then you also have ones that can increase in diameter which you get in the dicotyledons, which are the vascular cambiums. And then you can also have some ones where plants have divisions, areas of cell division at the nodes of the plant, and they're called the intercalary meristems. And so you have these specific regions where cell division takes place. And this helps explain why if you put like a nail in a tree and you come back 10 years later and the tree is 10 metres tall, but the nails only just moved a little bit, That's because the plant's growing from the top and the bottom part of the plant has just been there for a very, very long time. The thing I've heard with meristems is that they're like a stem cell. Yeah, they are like a stem cell. So the meristems with that region of cell division, those cells can turn into any type of cell. So that's what a stem cell is. And uh, it can turn into, differentiate, we say it can turn into, you know, either a packing cell or an epidermis or a vascular tissue or whatever else depending on on where it finds itself within the plant and there's a number of different kind of ways that they can be triggered by hormones to develop into particular types of cells cells so you have these particular zones where the cell division takes place and then as the plant gets longer and longer if you like the tips where the cells are dividing you know the shoot gets further and further up because it's cutting off cells towards the bottom pushing itself up and as those cells get older first of all they will elongate and then they will start turning into particular cell types so the ones on the outside will turn into epidermis and then the next ones in will turn into those ground cells which are pretty nondescript and then the ones in the next zone in will turn into a phloem and then next zone in will be xylem and then there'll be another patch in the middle that ground tissue as well in the pit. Mm. So this fact has a lot of sort of consequences when we're talking about horticulture for example it affects the way we have to prune it affects why we can't ring bark a tree it's sort of like i guess we can go in any of those directions but let's start with cambiums ros what is a cambium cambium is where you get uh, lateral divisions of a plant so rather than the tips tops and bottoms it, it increases sideways and the cells divide so that the plant can increase in diameter and If you look at them under the microscope, it's like a little ring of cells that goes all the way around, joining up all the vascular bundles that looks a bit like a a brick wall almost. They're very even. And as they divide, they cut off or divide, develop phloem to the outside and xylem to the inside. And this enables the plant to get bigger and bigger in diameter. Now, I think you can see that because the vascular tissue as a plant grows is not exactly on the surface, right? It's a bit further in. There's a couple of issues. One is if you cut into that, you will kill the plant like with ring barking. But also it actually starts knocking off all those outer layer of cells. So the whole thing gets pushed out. And so the plant develops a second cambium called the cork and that forms the bark. So you have an outer layer and an inner layer and that's how it increases in diameter. And my understanding is, and I could be wrong here, that sometimes bark is actually the phloem on a plant. Sorry, yeah. So the cork is the kind of fibrous part and then the bark is a is a term that includes all of that cork and the cork cambium and the phloem. Right. 
So that's correct. Yeah, the the phloem, if the term bark includes the phloem and therefore if you ring bark or cut into that, you will kill the tree because the phloem is living. Mm. Mm. Yep. And that depends on the tree too. Like eucalyptus will just shed off some of their bark and, you know, whereas maybe in certain types of oak, if you ring bark a certain type of an oak tree, that's bad news. So let's move on to, let's talk about, I guess, epicormic growth. How does epicormic growth work, Roz? So if plants grow from particular spots and you think, okay, I've said they've grown from the tips and they grow from the bottom and they grow diameter with these cambiums, these merry stems that go on the side. But what about epicormic buds? You know, you cut off the, or you burn off a eucalypt, the top of the plant, and then all these side branches come out. Where do they come from? Well, it turns out that they are, in fact, dormant buds that are formed and put in place when that part of the plant is being formed. And so they have these, uh, and they will have dormant merry stems on them. And when they're released, they're inhibited from growing. And when they're released from that inhibition through various reasons, they can then re-sprout and you get those side branches growing. So they're a necessary function within a plant, but they don't necessarily indicate a healthy plant. Not necessarily a healthy plant, So, but they're very important. So, for example, when you have a bushfire go through and all the leaves of the plant are taken off and often the top of the plant, all those main merry stems are gone, the branches are gone, and then you go back a month or so later and you see this green fuzz all down. Well, those plants are all growing from their epicormic buds up and down the plant. And one of the things that stimulates them to grow is that the top of the plant or the apex of the plant makes a hormone that inhibits the growth of those side branches. And when that's removed, then they can regrow. So in this case, you've removed the top of the plant with a fire and then all these side branches can can sprout and gradually they will take over and some of them will become dominant and so you'll end up with a a kind of a normal shape. Uh, Mm. It's the same principle when when you prune a plant and you would know more about this because I'm not a brilliant gardener, Uh, (laughs) when you cut the tops off, you'll get the side branches to grow out. And it's the same principle as that you're taking away where this hormone is produced and allowing those side branches to to shoot out either new side branches or encourage growth of existing side branches. Mm. A friend of mine on Twitter, Gary Moran at Arbasmarty, goes by the name of Trees Etc. on Twitter. He sort of says... Topping is for ice cream, not for trees. And we can call topping when we just lop off branches indiscriminately. So you'll see someone come, oh, I want to make this tree shorter. Just chop off the branches. And then, you know, like, I guess it, you're essentially turning that tree into a hedge with epicormic growth. Sounds right. Mm. So I guess let's move on now to the difference between roots and stems, Roz. Are we talking about the same sort of tissue here or are they two different types of the plant, basically? They actually are really different. The arrangement of the the vascular tissue, that xylem and foam, is quite different in stems and roots. So the roots and shoots of plants are fundamentally the same and fundamentally different. What is the same is that they have that same arrangement of epidermis, ground tissue, xylem, phloem, pith, right? That's kind of the same. But it is different because you don't get that central pith in young roots. That's where you have the xylem. So the arrangement of the vascular tissue is fundamentally different. So in in shoots, you get, say in dicot shoots, you get these rings of vascular bundles set in the ground tissue. In the roots, you have what's called a steel, S-T-E-L-E, and it has like a little, often a star-shaped arrangement of xylem, if you like, say a, cr- a cross. And then in the in between the crosses, you have these little patches of phloem And then that is surrounded by a special group of cells. So you have this central steel and that special ring of cells is called an endodermis. That means an inner skin. And that actually enables the plant to control what water and what mineral salts go in and out of the plant. That's the control point for the plant. Mm. Right. In horticulture, we say you don't want to plant something too deeply. Because I guess those two tissue types are very different. Yeah, the tissue types are very different. And if you're looking at an older woody plant, the types of bark will be very different. But the main thing is that vascular tissue is very different. Mm. And 
it's important to have roots underground and shoots above ground. And then I guess sometimes we're going to come across some differences, like, for example, something like a fig tree is going to have aerial roots that are actually perfectly happy to be outside of the ground. Yeah, you're going to have roots which are referred to as adventitious roots as opposed to true roots. So true roots will have that structure that I'm talking about, and that will vary a bit as the plants get older, of course, but this is the functional part of the root has that structure. But adventitious roots, if you like, are adventurous and these okay. are the ones that, that come out from the stem. So prop roots that you might see on a mangrove or your mm-hmm. roots on a fig, they will grow down and they can function as roots. So you can have things that have a stem-like structure that will actually function as roots. Right. So let's move on now to the basic anatomy of a leaf. I guess, look, we'll do a whole episode on just leaf anatomy because there's so much there, but can you just briefly explain for the listeners what is a leaf? The definition of a leaf would be, I'm just trying to think, how do I define a leaf? That's actually a really good question. (laughs) What we understand as a leaf is that they'll have the same layers of cells that we've talked about before. You have an epidermis over the outside, you have the the packing cells, which are sort of like the ground tissue, and you have a vascular tissue. The difference with a leaf is that those packing cells have have, have taken on the role of photosynthesis and they are completely packed with uh, little uh, structures called uh, chloroplasts, which are full of chlorophyll, and that's where photosynthesis takes takes place. And the arrangement of those uh, special cells, they're called mesophyll cells, is characteristic of the species. So sometimes they're long and thin or palisade-shaped, sometimes they're circular and sometimes they're tightly packed and some of them are loosely packed, and that will depend on where the plant grows and also what particular species you're you're dealing with and and how they're arranged will be different in monocots and dicots as well. Mm -hmm. The primary function of the leaf is to change sunlight and carbon dioxide and water into sugars and energy and it drives the planet. That process of photosynthesis is really the energy of the biological energy of of the whole planet. We're really all dependent on that. And we will do a whole episode on photosynthesis as well. So we'll do look out for that in the future, listeners, because, yeah, there's a lot more to be talked about here, but we're going to move on because this is just basic biology today. So, Roz, we did talk briefly about plant buds there, and I'm going to have links in the show notes to some diagrams, as I mentioned at the start, but can we just return to plant buds? What are we talking about there? Well, there's different types of buds, I guess. You've got the flower buds and leaf buds and everything, but these are going to be areas that have a meristem and are going to be able to grow. I think that's my understanding of it. Daniel, what's your understanding of it as a horticulturalist? (laughs) As a horticulturist. So we're looking at plant buds. They're sort of like tightly bound little bundles of, as I understand it, as you've said, meristems. So they're basically juvenile stems, including like leaves and stuff like that, or maybe some some buds include flowers in them. So that's something like maybe an ornamental pear or something like that is going to have some, you'll see little flower buds inside of the same bud. Or other plants will have, you know, like roses are just going to have a flower bud that has no leaves in it. Yeah, so it's a it's a special part of the plant which is able to undergo cell division and develop a particular structure and that will be either a vegetative bud which will give rise to a shoot or a leaf or it will be a reproductive bud, in which case it will give rise to a flower. Hmm. A reproductive bud, that's and a vegetative bud. So those are interesting terms. So that's that's good to have those sort of differentiated. And I guess they sort of tend to come out of not, I think my understanding is they always come out of what's called a leaf axle or, or from the apical stem, so from the very tip. When, when plants grow and they're developing up you know, they're growing from the tip and laying down cells. Along the way, they will leave, depending on the species, they will leave little buds that can be activated at a later point. And they are generally in the axles of the leaves. Now, you know, I'm an academic 
plant biologist and we always have this saying that if you actually want your plants to grow well for an experiment, you need to hire a horticulturalist. So <laughs> I, won't, I won't go too far down that road, but that's my understanding. Mm. Yeah, well, a lot of horticulturists probably maybe, you know, we learn a little bit of biology, but we don't learn that much because it's just so much to learn, Ros. We all have to. Well, we learn on the job and we learn yeah. what we need to know. So one of the things I think is interesting about buds is that you get, you can release sometimes the dormancy of those buds. So they're dormant. They're just sitting there not doing anything. Mm. Sometimes it's released by climate. So you might say leaf bud in spring is going to be a combination of probably changes in, in temperature experience. So some plants have to experience a certain amount of chill, certain low temperatures to activate those buds. Other plants will respond so it's cold and then it's followed by warm. Other plants, it's just when it becomes warm. So they're responding to those those particular things in terms of climate. There'll be other buds that respond to other parts of the climate as it grows. For example, if you put a plant in the shade, sometimes the leaves will just get bigger and that's, of course, to increase the amount of surface area for photosynthesis. But some plants will actually become more bushy, to, again, for the same reason, to make more leaves. But you know, the horticulturalists will know which plants do what. The other way you can stimulate buds is by cutting off the top of the plant. Mm -hmm. And this can happen naturally, like from a fire, it can happen when the top of the plant is eaten, or it can also uh, happen if you just prune it and you'll get those side shoots. And what's happening is that there's a hormone called auxin that's produced in the tips of the plant, and that suppresses bud growth. And if you cut the tip of the plant, you will release bud growth. Mm. And that happens in most in most plants, but not all. Mm. When we're talking about pruning, you know, we have winter pruning of roses and we want to prune for a frame a lot of the time. So when we say, you know, we're, we're pruning down to just above a leaf with a bud that's pointing outwards, and that's for that reason is that that bud hopefully will become the dominant one and it will sort of grow outwards in spring and it will form a nice frame on the rose bush. Yep, that's exactly right. And in roses, they'll be the case in point that they're responding to warming temperatures, whereas some mm. of the other trees, I think, I can't remember, some of the fruit trees actually require a certain amount of chilling before they will make those side branches. Right. Now, not all plants do this, and some plants have what we call determinate growth and some have indeterminate growth. So indeterminate growth means you can chop the tips off and they'll re-sprout from these buds. But plants with determinate growth don't re-sprout from side mm -hmm. buds. And mm. an example of that would be your cypress hedges. And you can see when people cut too far back into the old growth, it just dies. And that's because mm -hmm. they don't have these buds sitting there waiting to be reactivated. Yeah, it's a tragedy when you sort of see a horticulturist who's maybe not necessarily trained in what plants you can do that to sort of come up and, yeah, hedge back some of those conifers. It's particularly true in conifers from my understanding. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. So I guess let's move on now from plant buds into sexual reproduction. So I guess we're talking about these four different types of plants, bryophytes, pteridophytes, or you call them pteridophytes, gymnos, and angios. So let's start with ferns and bryophytes. How do they sexually reproduce? Bryophytes are absolutely fascinating in the way they reproduce. So they are quite different from, for example, what we really understand, for example, in the human perspective of what reproduction is. So we have the adult and as with most animals that we're familiar with, we have two sets of chromosomes in every cell, one from our mother, one from our father, and they come together. So one lot was in the egg, one lot was in the sperm, comes together, and then that makes an individual that grows into a person, which is us. But what happens in plants is that they have this other phase that goes in between. So what happens is that when a plant makes the egg cell or the sperm cell, they actually don't, there's a little phase before then and they go through this, this division that cuts the number of chromosomes down by half, so just one set, and then that grows into a whole plant. And it's actually true of all plants, but in flowering plants it's only just only a few cells, but in something like the bryophytes, it is the whole plant just has one set of chromosomes in each cell. So this is called a gametophyte. And that grow, so they go through uh, this phase of making spores. The spores grow into a gametophyte. And then the gamete makes eggs and sperm. And it fertilizes. And then that grows into 
the normal, if you like, adult organism that we understand like we are with two sets of chromosomes. And that then makes spores. So if you look at a moss plant, often you just see all the little green plants. So they're all just got one set of chromosomes in each cell. Absolutely amazing that they grow like that. Mm -hmm. Then you can see at certain times of the year, you see that little brown thing sticking up out of the top of them or goes brown with a little blob on the end. And that's, that's that's the sporophyte. And that is the result of sexual reproduction. So they have a combination of this sort of, I guess, asexual phase that takes them through to making the green part of the plant, and then that produces an egg uh, often on separate individuals on one plant, and then the other one actually makes motile sperm. So they actually have swimming sperm. doesn't look like human sperm because it's got two flagellas instead of one, and that has to get from the male plant across to the female plant, and so that requires a splash of water. So for reproduction, mosses have to have water for that reproduction. It's very interesting. The thing that's really interesting about this, they call it the alternation of generations. So you have one generation which has one set of chromosomes, Mm -hmm. another generation which has two sets of chromosomes. And you can see in a moss that the main plant is the the juvenile or gametophyte and Mm -hmm. the the little sporophyte part that actually produces is the result of sexual reproduction is actually dependent on it and is actually parasitic on the on the on the juvenile part of the plant those proportions change over evolutionary time so by the time you get to a fern you have the main plant is the sporophyte so you know you flick up the leaves the fronds of the uh, mm. of the fern and you see those little brown dots so those all the brown dots are spores, and each one of those will grow into this little tiny, tiny gametophyte that's probably maybe only a centimetre across, maybe even less, and that will undergo sexual reproduction and produce motile sperm and produce the eggs. And, and if you get one and stick it under a, like a microscope and you see these little, all these little sperm swimming around on the little fern, it's, it's the most amazing thing, and then that reproduces and makes the adult fern plant. When you get to flowering plants, that gametophyte is so small that it's actually a pollen grain for the males and for the females is just a, a couple of little few, about eight cells that's in the, it's in the, bon, in the ovule of the, of the plant. And so it's wow. tiny. I had no idea about any of this, Rose. I thought we were just going to say spores and that was going to be the end of it. <laughs> no, so, it, you know. People often roll their eyes like people, I mean, undergraduate students learning about alternation of generations. But I find it absolutely fascinating that there is more than one way to reproduce. We're so used to thinking about animal reproduction, we forget that Mm. there other organisms have evolved all kinds of other ways to reproduce. And plants are extraordinary the way they do it. They do sex differently to animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. So I guess when we're talking about spores, we're going to need water. What is the big advantage that gymnosperms had then? I'm just going to say, so spores just germinate and turn into a, uh, and turn into the next generation of plant. Mm. So they don't require water for sex, for reproduction, in the sense that oh. that's not the spores aren't the result of the sperm and egg coming together. It's actually that the sperm and egg coming together will germinate and grow into a plant that then right. makes spores. Okay. So those spores then are, uh, are the, the half, half genes, what do you call it, the gametophyte. So they're the, yeah. they're the half a gene and then that plant will then use water to become yeah. a plant that creates spores. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so you have to have water for reproduction in mosses and you have to have water for reproduction in ferns. The big advantage of gymnosperms is that you no longer need water for reproduction because they have got rid of the motile sperm. So they make pollen, which contains, if you like, a sperm cell, and then that can fly through the air or whatever else and land on the female, and, uh, and then that sperm just grows into, can fertilise the, the female part of the plant. So the big advantage of gymnosperms is that you don't need water for reproduction. Major advantage when you're living on land. Mm, totally. So that makes sense that, you know, bryophytes and pteridophytes or pteridophytes 
a sort of a bit closer to their algal ancestors, which sort of were water dwellers. And now, now that we're getting further and further into living on land, now plants have adapted wind pollination through conifers. Yep, exactly. And that means you, you, then you can have wind pollination and you don't have this vulnerable part of the life cycle, which is dependent on water. And mm. uh, there's actually a little intermediate, if you like, a living fossil in the ginkgos. I don't know if you know about that, but they have a little thing where the, the pollen lands and instead of just like a pollen tube and so never having a flagellated male cell, male gamete, they actually make a little blob of liquid and make a motile sperm that just swims that last little bit through to the right. female. So they make water themselves. Well, they, they, I don't want to say make water because you don't make water, but they come up with the water themselves through their vascular system or something, do they? Yeah, they have, they have a liquid and I honestly don't know the details of the chemistry, but I just remember always right. being fascinated with this intermediate phase that, that you see in, in ginkgos. That, that have this, this, they have a motile sperm just for that, just a very okay. short period in between. Whereas in gymnosperms proper that we know, you don't have that and you definitely don't have it in flowering plants. And so in gymnosperms that you still get that gametophyte thing that's like a fern, but it's inside the seed before and it actually turns into the seed and it has about 100, 150 cells in it. So it's actually substantial. But if you then take that next phase and go to flowering plants, that will be eight cells. Right. So okay. it gets smaller and smaller because it's a very vulnerable part of the plant life cycle. Mm. So I guess gymnosperms is the first spot where seeds turn up. Is that right? Yeah. So then you have seeds. And seeds are a great thing because you've got like this protective layer around the outside and they don't have to grow and germinate straight away. So you can, uh, you can store your next generation. And that's mm. absolutely brilliant because otherwise they have to, you know, if you have like a, a fern which is fertilised and it just has to grow straight away, right? But if you can actually make a little seed, then you can, if you like, put it into, into storage until conditions are suitable for growth. Mm. And I guess we can do a whole episode just on cone-bearing plants and the sort of reproduction system and then a whole another episode just on flower anatomy because these are very con sort of convoluted subjects yeah absolutely you need a whole episode on flowers for sure and they look yeah. so beautiful anyway yeah oh why not we could do several episodes on flowers so we're talking about with gymnosperms you know generally they're sort of wind pollinated and then we have this major advantage with flowering plants that has helped them just basically take over the world can you describe why flowers are so successful there's a bunch of reasons why angiosperms are more successful. Part of it is that they have a much better vascular tissue. They have, uh, you know, a number of different adaptations. But the key one is that they have flowers and they have fruits. So a fruit is means that the seeds are enclosed in something. So whether that is in something hard, like a eucalyptus capsule, that protects the seed or if it's in a soft fruit that enables that an animal might eat it and then excrete the seed or the seed might fall with its own little bit of fertilizer around it from the fruit, that's a huge advantage. So angiosperms are successful from flowering but also from the fruits as well. The mm. big advantage of the flowers, of course, is that they can really promote pollination and so rather than self-pollinating all the time, they can out-pollinate. Well, you know, gymnosperms do that too, right? So pines are conifers, you see those sprays of pollen, it's wind-pollinated. Plenty of angiosperms are wind-pollinated. But to harness insects and use them to transfer long distances, to transfer from plant to plant, and then a lot of co-evolution between various animals and plants, uh, the flowering plants has really promoted diversity. So outcrossing, if you like, or yeah, outbreeding is an enormous advantage for uh, creating diversity. Mm. So, Roz, now we're coming to the end of the episode. I always like to ask my guests, is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know about? It's a funny thing about plants is that so many people don't appreciate them. I'm sure the audience of this podcast do appreciate them because they're, you know, largely horticulturalists and gardeners <laughs> and so on. But, you know, generally people think it's a really weird thing to look at. And often it's referred to as plant blindness. There are some other expressions, but that's more or less what it is. You know, if you see a photo of a koala, 
in a tree, people just think there's a photo of a koala. But the only reason the koala is there is because the tree is there. It's eating the tree, it's living off the tree. So if you want to preserve koalas, you have to preserve the trees and you have to preserve the right sort of trees. So you have to know what they are. I mean, plants provide habitat for animals. They're also, if you like, planetary engineers, and they're absolutely fascinating. They produce our food, they produce our air, they produce our energy, they do things differently. And at the Global Plant Council, our aim is really to promote the research and training of plant scientists. And these are generally things that we have to compete very hard for against more obvious things like, you know, research into to diseases and so on. But in fact, mm. so many of our pharmaceuticals come from plants. They are so mm. important. And to preserve biodiversity and health of our ecosystems and uh, urban plants, this is all so important for both our mental health, our physical health, and the health of the planet. So I would just encourage people to keep their eyes open and notice the plants. Don't just look at the koalas. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Roz. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure. I hope I've got most of these things right, but if anybody has any complaints, please let me know. I'm very happy to learn. Yeah, and yeah, let us know too on either Facebook or Twitter. So, Yeah, follow me on Twitter if you like too. Yeah, there'll be a link in the show notes. Yeah. After we'd finished recording, Rods emailed me and mentioned that we forgot to speak about root hairs and mycorrhizae, which are both incredibly important to the way that plants uptake water and nutrients. When you listen to a densely packed episode like this, don't be afraid to come back later and have a second and even a third listen in a few days or weeks time, because you'll be surprised how much you do pick up on each subsequent listen. To access the diagrams I mentioned, you can check out the show notes. Depending on where you're looking at the show notes, you may or may not be able to click the links, but you can always click the links from the podcast section on our website, plantsgrowhere.com slash pages slash podcast. Just look for the lowercase i information icon on the player itself. So, Roz, when we're mowing, why does the grass grow like it does, you know... Because you've just told us that Mary stems are at the tips and, you know, in the tips of the buds and stuff like that rather than at the base of the plant. How does that work? Yeah, so, um, yeah, you don't make lawns out of shrubs because it doesn't doesn't work that way because mm. in grasses the growing point is actually lower down the plant. It's actually at, at, that, at that node or intercalary Mary stem lower down. And grasses essentially have been evolved, have evolved to be grazed by herbivores, you know, you think of plains of Africa, you know, whatever, and it gets grazed down and then it can just regrow from the base because it's growing from the bottom of the plant, not from the top of the plant. So when you're mowing your lawn, you're just being like a, like a regular herbivore.